Welcome to this third episode in the Project Edward 2021 podcast. My name is Neil Barrett and I'm continuing our series of discussions with highly experienced and well-qualified people who are sharing their thoughts on topics connected with safer road transport. Now, if you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if like me, you're interested in new vehicle technology, you might have noticed this announcement by the UK government in April 2021. Self-driving vehicles could be on UK roads by the end of this year. Now, the news sparked a number of press headlines, as you can imagine, excitement in some quarters that the future of driving could be with us sooner rather than later. Looking at the detail, the announcement was mainly about paving the way for fully automated lane keeping systems to be introduced into vehicles here. Not just assistance with keeping in lane, where you still need to keep your hands on the wheel, but full autonomy of the lane keeping process. It will initially be limited to 37 miles per hour on motorways. While we're still a long way from full self-driving, I think that's level five on the well-established international scale of vehicle autonomy, we are reaching the moment where the message to GB drivers starts moving towards this. You do not need to pay attention to the road. That's a quote from a piece of the proposed new highway code wording. Of course, it would initially only apply to the lane keeping system on specially approved vehicles and drivers would need to remain in their seat ready to take over when prompted. It's a significant shift, though, in the balance of control of the vehicle. But to look at this in context, most studies show that at least 90% of all motor vehicle crashes involve human error in some form. So the argument is the AVs will significantly reduce overall risk and incident numbers. The legal framework for all of this is the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act 2018. Yes, this quite extensive piece of law got onto the UK statute book around three years ago, but it's now in 2021 that large parts of it are being activated, ready for the rollout of autonomous driving in Great Britain. I'll just add a point of detail here. Northern Ireland has various driving and roads regulations of its own and wasn't included in the relevant part of this act. So as well as setting out the official definition of an automated or autonomous vehicle, that's what we're referring to as an AV, and establishing a central register of makes and models, the new law has extensive provisions on insurance and liability, going into a fair amount of detail, to be fair. It's including limited and insurance liability when the owner hasn't been maintaining the vehicle's software with safety critical updates. There are still some unanswered questions about liability in particular situations, and there's a need to understand the implications for driver training, incident handling, infrastructure, and to be fair, lots of other areas. So let's talk about these implications and how our roads might look over the coming years. I'm joined by Neil Worth, Chief Executive of GEM Motoring Assist, breakdown cover provider, and Colin Patterson, Head of Marketing for DriveTech, a driver training and business fleet solutions business. Both companies are supporting the aims of Project Edward as partners. Okay, let's dive straight into this. Colin, let's look at these levels of autonomy a bit more. What are these levels? Who's in charge at each level and where's the industry on the scale at the moment? Um, First off, uh, I think the words you used in your introduction about autonomy and assistance and self-driving are fascinating. But maybe I suspect Neil and I might explore that a little bit further during this discussion. Um, In terms of sort of technical statement, Uh, And to start off by confusing people, there are arguably either six or five levels. But just to reassure everyone, level, the first one is level zero, no automation, no sort of uh, any other things than manual driving the vehicle. So the levels of automation are now one to five. And in terms of official definition, I think the Society of Automotive Engineers introduced this, this classification, which helps to compartmentalise what's going on. So Neil, 
thinking about that, picking that up, what's the biggest barrier to getting to level five? Is, is it regulation or is it innovation or is it something else? I think it's probably a mixture of both. Parliamentarians can can make the, the regulations and we've seen that in the act that you've already mentioned, but it's having that wider understanding within the community. And I know we're going to talk about that maybe a bit later about what an autonomous vehicle can or cannot do and how people or other road users uh, interact with it. Um, and I'd, I'd add infrastructure as being a barrier to full autonomy because you know we we drive on roads that in some cases are a thousand years old or more, um, and sometimes they feel like it with a number of potholes and uh, missing road markings and, and other things. So if we're going to be driving around in vehicles that are relying on the road markings to to tell it where it is uh, in terms of its position on the road. Um, and you know the speed limit signs that it, it sees we we need to have that all needs to be top notch before we can look at cars doing it for themselves without actually a driver being involved uh, talking about that scenario side neil let, i'm going to throw one at you now and um, and we're picking up that point about liability and how far things have come so here's the scenario this let's say there's a collision between two cars now it's clear that one of the cars or its driver is the main cause. The car was being driven correctly in an automated mode. So the vehicle was in control and at the moment that it was about to happen, the driver did not need to pay attention. So everything was what you would call above board in this new world of the A&EV Act. Who foots the bill when it comes to liability? In terms of the Act, that will be, uh, if the car is properly insured, then that is the insurance company. Um, and that's that's very clear. Actually, I think Section Two of that Act says that where a vehicle is in where an accident, and I don't like the term, but that's what the legislation says, is caused by an automated vehicle when driving itself on a road, and the vehicle's insured, then the insurer is liable for that damage. If the vehicle isn't insured or is uh, in the, it's either in a, a public service vehicle or in the service of the Crown then the owner of the vehicle is responsible. But for general purposes, in, in that scenario that you've just given me, uh, yeah, it's the the uh, insurance company for that autonomous vehicle should pay out. I, I, I agree. I, I'm A, I'm not a legal beagle. So some of the legality of the document, like most legislation, can tie you in some, you know, convoluted technology knots. My interpretation, I'm not a lawyer, is that, yes, there is still a, 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 what this does is introduce a, a, a high degree of ambiguity as to who is to blame. So in the current days where a motorist, a human is in charge of the vehicle, whatsoever the sophisticated kit is at the moment on a car, they're in charge. And all of motor insurance is effectively predicated on that. So we have to find out who's to blame. And then that human is insured and is covered. Obviously, if they're not insured, then there's trouble. But let's just stick to the model of purity. I'm insured. Was I in charge of the vehicle if it was in autonomous mode needs to be proven one way or the other. So I, my interpretation of the Act in particular is about working out who is liable immediately to be paid out. So something goes wrong. I need to get my money if I'm actually the, guilt, the, the, the recipient of the damage. I need to make a claim. And I think part of the complexity here is, well, the claim going back to a vehicle manufacturer to investigate whether the kit was wrong, 
The human driving was wrong. Somebody's told fibs about whether they were in control or not at the time. I suspect you'd have to drill back into a lot of data and black box technology. So the insurance program, I believe, that's come to the fore is to say the insurance company is first and foremost liable to pay out. The insurance company can then subsequently seek to compensate themselves through the manufacturer. So I guess the poor person driving the vehicle doesn't end up in a 15-year legal wrangle. They get paid out by the insurer. It is the insurer's responsibility to then chase that one through with the manufacturer if it is believed that the manufacturer's vehicle is at fault and didn't perform as described. Um, but it, it does inc- it, it introduces for me a concern over am- you know, ambiguity and definition. And actually, I know Neil has a background with the police more strongly than me, but if I'm a police officer turning up at the scene of an accident... Neil's word, but we, we, we generally call them road traffic incidents or collisions. If I turn up, instead of talking to two parties, driver A and driver B, I'm trying to consider, were either of you to blame or was the vehicle to blame? And if so, what mode was it in? So I, I think a lot of the legislation is meant to try and clear that up, provide immediacy, but I still think there's going to be a lot of a, a, a trail of audit to go on behind the scenes. And it makes liability and claims much more complex sorry neil go on no i was just going to say just picking up on what colin said about from an investigation point of view i think you it would be very easy to turn up at a scene of a a, a collision where you've got two vehicles and um you've got two drivers but then the, the the driver of the offending vehicle says actually i wasn't driving the car was in it was in autopilot it was doing it itself so from a an investigation point of view, you're going to have to get the car taken away, seized, and then there's going to be some forensic investigation to actually look at what mode was it in, what speed was it doing, and it will add a definitely add a level of complexity that and and cost in terms of uh, sort of policing and investigation, and that's the sort of stuff that would be that happens for serious and, and fatal collisions. Um, but not for sort of non-injury or or minor injury claims. But I can see that that may be where we go. Or insurance companies will have to invest in that uh, level of forensic investigation to be able to to take the data from the cars to actually prove that yeah the driver had was hands off and uh, it was in an autonomous mode. So I think there is an awful there is still an awful lot of of work to be done. Uh, around that despite what the legislation says around well the insurance company would be liable yeah thanks so i want to move away from the policing side a bit it's a topic i'm sure we'll return to before the end of this conversation but i want to just talk about training now colin what are the awareness and the sort of training implications of the advent of avs because it's not just the av drivers themselves who are going to know about all of this is it no um a lot of, I mean, a the dynamics of technology and development means it, it's often moving forward. So I think the automotive industry, probably like every other sector, follows a lag. So there's some new tech. It typically is put on a few, a handful of vehicles experimentally, and then high net worth type vehicles, and then it gradually cascades into the mainstream. But it's always changing for starters. Um, but secondarily, and, and again, maybe I'm becoming a little bit simplistic again, who needs to know about this? Well, working backwards, the poor driver needs to know what all of this new kit is that's being put onto the vehicle that should be a safety benefit to them. 
but not necessarily is why nobody's explained what it does, why it does it, and how it's going to improve safety. So I currently feel sorry for drivers because the tech is now getting so fast and so clever. Nobody is properly educating the driver. Um, and to use an example, I won't necessarily talk about the brand, although you can probably use your imagination. We, we've picked up a recent leading edge AV uh, EV, sorry, electric vehicle um, with lots of this by definition because of its solid state computer basis has lots of clever gadgetry on it. The handover for that vehicle for the poor driver, who happened to be a qualified professional driver training manager, so was capable of overriding this, the handover was about five minutes. Here's the keys. The car's out in the lot. Enjoy. And then driving back, it happened to be from Scotland down to the southeast of England. On the drive, that gentleman was probably figuring out why the vehicle's steering wheel was vibrating and why maybe it was pulling to the left or why an alert was being signalled. And he had no information about it. So your question was, who needs to know? People who deliver and provide vehicles need to know and need to educate the drivers. Otherwise, I think what we're doing is unleashing fantastic tech onto people who don't a understand it or b know how to fully utilize it safely um, i use the I, I reflect badly on me i use a laptop i'm probably using about five percent of its proper functionality and that's fine again because i'm sitting on a chair normally drinking coffee and working on a laptop and the worst that can happen is i send the wrong email but the danger of not knowing what's going on in a vehicle traveling at 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, surrounded by other vehicles and not actually knowing about the tech, I think is really worrying. So drivers need to be educated. Um, and we see that through our own training delivery. People are yearning, I think, for training knowledge of EV. But obviously, EV is just one new powertrain. Um, it's more about the tech that's arriving and increasingly being put on the vehicles. Yeah, I think that's a fair point because you, you obviously get a bit of confusion there between the autonomous side and the electric side. People see them as one of the same, but they are two completely different topics. Yes, it's technology, but that's where they sort of start to diverge, isn't it, Neil? Yeah, and um, having taken delivery of a, a new electric vehicle um, last November, it's the handover was, you're right, there's the key, off you go. Um, and it has... I would suggest it's definitely at a level two uh, on that on the scale. Um, it has all the the whistles and bells in terms of safety features, um, but yeah, nobody actually said to me this is how it works, this is how you turn it off, or this is how you turn it on. It, so yeah, I think that has that's got to be a key factor for drivers of these vehicles. They need to understand how it works and spend more than the five minutes to say there you go, get on with it. But I think in a from a wider road user's perspective. There's things that we do as drivers, things that we do as pedestrians that give us cues, uh, or cyclists, or any any type of road user, where you you get that understanding. So if you're driving and you are approaching a junction and you see that there's a pedestrian going to cross in front of you, you make eye contact with that person, don't you? So that you know that they've seen you before you then carry on or, or do whatever it is you're going to do, and whether that's you you crossing the road or them crossing the road in front of you. Likewise with a cyclist or with a horse rider you've got a, a horse rider you deal with those in a particular way an autonomous vehicle may not be able to to react in the same way as you as the driver can so what implications are there for equestrians for cyclists um, and how how is that going to impact 
on road safety and and how everybody uses the road it's not just about drivers of cars it's about motorcyclists and, and everybody else going back to that highway code wording neil and, and you know i'll quote it again you do not need to pay attention to the road. Now, that's the wording for certain functions. Obviously, that's not a generalism. That's, that's you know, the wording that will may be used when we come on to certain functions like automatic lane keeping systems being deployed. And again, we're not talking about ones that just are supposed to assist with the lane keeping where you would be still concentrating. But these are ones where the functions have legal permission to say to you, I'll let you know when I need you. You stay in the seat there, be ready to take over, but I'll let you know when I need you. Now, going back to that wording, and it's, it's draft wording, but I, what occurs to me is it, policing this is going to be difficult. And I'll just give an example. This isn't a sort of a collision or an accident situation. This is a day-to-day scenario. So the driver's not paying attention. Potentially, legally, depending on what the exact rules are, legally using their mobile phone or even watching a movie on the screen of the car going up to 37 miles an hour on a motorway. Now, how does this get policed? I just have a perception of a police officer drive, a traffic police officer driving around looking for offences, maybe on one of those pre-planned operations. I'll, I'll just ask you the question, Neil. I'll throw it straight at you. How does it get policed? It's a very good question, Neil, and I don't know that I can, and I'd know the answer to that. Really, I think it it adds a, an entire level of complexity in terms of policing that probably hasn't been thought through. If I'm honest. Um, to say to somebody, you don't have to pay attention to the road, then opens that up, as you've said, to watching a movie, reading the paper, using a mobile phone, whereas the legislation says you can't use a mobile phone while you're driving. And in a vehicle that has autonomous lane keeping, you are still the driver. So, yeah, I think it's going to take probably some foresight and and planning in terms of uh, the regulations and i think the law commission have been looking at autonomous vehicles um the parliamentary will to actually differentiate between these offenses and then it goes back to that burden of proof well i'm sorry officer i was in an autonomous mode and therefore that's why i was using my phone well that then would fall to the police officer to prove that which then opens up that great big can of worms we were talking about earlier in terms of that forensic investigation for a mobile phone offense is that going to be cost effective then probably not that 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 may not happen um i just think yeah it will be a it will definitely be a struggle um particularly around that those offences or those things that, that, that you've suggested because thinking practically about it now i can't see how Actually, it will work in practice. <laughs> and I think the hypothesis, that it's a sort of lifestyle hypothesis positioned again by words like autopilot and autonomous that creates a, a construct that says, yeah, I'm driving along the motorway, but I can happily read the paper or watch a film. If you then read the small print, it says, however, if, if you take the ALKS, the automatic lane keeping system, which is the early foray the government are now considering, it does actually say the driver must be in a position to regain control, direct control of the vehicle. And I can't remember the, 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 the statistics. I think it's in 10 seconds. Now, if I'm in the middle of a phone call or a juicy Disney film, I'm not sure that I can react quickly to get back in control of that vehicle. Um, so, again, I, I'm talking in a fairly lay term 
but it worries the life out of me that if people believe they can sit on a motorway and okay at a lower speed 37 miles an hour but switch off from awareness of their surroundings switch off from what's going on in the immediacy of their vehicle to watch a film i, th I think it's dangerously irresponsible and I think it's misleading people at the moment to think they will get leisure time in their vehicle. And I, I, I don't see it happening. I see. And the point about the police fallout, I suspect, will be unfathomable at times. But I, I, it concerns me that, you know, yeah, I'm not planning to actually drive along the motorway and read the newspaper because at some point I need to take control. And we all know on this call the fairly archetypal breaking distance scenarios. How long does it take to react and then to break? And what is your stopping distance? I think to have complete dissolution of driving and then suddenly be called back into action is even worse than actually having your hands on the wheel and having a sort of casual drive. I, I think the reaction times are going to be tragic in, in certain circumstances. Just just thinking about that, Colin, just as I'm, I'm thinking, so really, do you think, and I'm sorry, Neil, I'm just going to ask, ask Colin the question. But do you think instead of going the way that it appears to be going, so moving through this, the, the levels, that it would almost be better to go directly to the level five and, and the car does everything rather than add that level of ambiguity that you, we were just talking about? I think it's interesting you say that we, we were holding a webinar mainly for separate reasons with the policing fraternity about how are they going to police in the modern day and in the digital era. Um, and it was interesting. It was actually not me. It was Jonathan Hewitt, the CEO of Thatcham, who, as everyone will probably know, does effectively do a lot of work on behalf of the collective insurance industry to work out costs of damage and repair. But Jonathan made a very interesting point. He said, we're in a worrying middle grey area. Where am I or aren't I in control? And I think, again, with many aspects of life, experimenting with new kit is good fun, but not at 70 miles an hour on a motorway um, or with, as you said, horses or children or whatever it else is around. It's not an area to experiment. And I think this ambiguity and uncertainty and lack of training for drivers means it's a dangerous grey area at the moment. Um, and I, I, it's been it's been voiced before, but the use of language like autopilot, autonomous, self-driving, I think is just dangerously misleading at the moment. And yes, it's a grey area that's worrying to me. Talking about the policing side of it again, do you think deliberate misuse, deliberate misuse of AV functions will become a sort of specific offence rather than being in one of those sort of catch-all care and attention things on top of the on top of the legislation that they're, they're, they're bringing in from 2018? Um, yes, you know, undoubtedly. I think we talked about the tech and the proof, the burden of proof. So I think there will be the desire to prosecute and to, uh, if you like, punish people who are abusing the privilege. I, th I think the challenge comes as to proving it and saying who actually was liable at the time. No, it was the car. No, it was you. So I think there's worrying ambiguity. However, I do believe that there will, by nature of humans, there will be deliberate abuse. And I think that the policing fraternity and other associations, bodies, Highways England, for example, will have to be alert to that and actually clamp down on it. Um, your point is valid. Um, we do deliver, you've mentioned DriveTech, do deliver a, a, a range of speed awareness courses for police uh, forces around the country. Um, and that's good. 
but it's retrospective. It's punishing people for a misdemeanor. Uh, honestly, whilst it's it's obviously business for us and we enjoy that at the moment, we'd rather educate people up front to try and avoid persecuting them in the end, in the in the, in the final analysis. So whilst it's much more broad, education about what good looks like, how to drive sensibly in these new vehicles would be much more beneficial than punishing people after the event. Because the consequences are quite, you know, broad and dangerous, in my opinion. Um, but yes, your question was, will there be prosecutions? I have no doubts there will. Neil, do you want to come in quickly on that? While Colin was talking now, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the pre-driver training for this type of vehicle and whether there needs to be a change to the driving test that incorporates some of this technology. Well, we've just recently done, in the last few years, They've incorporated following a sat-nav um, and various other things into the driving test. Well, actually, as we're looking forward into a world where the car or the vehicle will be able to do more and will take more from you as the driver, that needs to be trained. And that needs to be trained early, um, pre-test, which doesn't help the rest of us that are already drivers. But certainly for the new cohort of, pe of drivers, people that are learning to drive, they will have an awareness and then over time that will follow through won't it with everybody in their driving uh, their driving careers so yeah I, I definitely think that we need to be looking at that driver training element of it and introduce it into the driving into the driving test crystal ball time so there are some statistics there to back up that the av rollout will make a difference to deaths and serious injuries, a positive impact. But so my question is, how many years do you think it take will take before we get that full autonomy, the level five? And then how long do you think it will take before we get a positive impact, if indeed we do, on deaths and serious injury numbers? And I'm going to start with you, Colin. I've got a feeling it's going to be longer rather than shorter. So some of the stuff I was reading up in, in preparation for this conversation, and of course, two years ago is brilliant hindsight, was talking about AV, autonomous vehicles, being live on UK roads in 2021. Now, we've talked earlier, it's open to interpretation. We're just about to possibly pop over the brink and start accepting ALKS, automatic lane keeping systems, as one aspect of where I talked earlier about level three autonomy. Where do I think level five will come? And my... my my sort of admiration for people involved in infrastructure and planning uh, will remain to be in awe. But in terms of structure alone, I think to make autonomous, never mind the technology in the vehicles, for to allow them to operate on a road network infrastructure that doesn't jeopardise pedestrians, cyclists, scooter users, etc., etc. I've got a feeling that we've underestimated the infrastructure requirement. I th and, and I'm passing off a little bit on the technology. If I can, I'll come back to that. My guess, and I'd rather not be pinned on this one, 25 to 30 years before full autonomous is operational and safe. Second point, does that apply across the world? So if I drive my vehicle elsewhere than, say, the UK, a reasonably developed society in self-contained Ireland, I don't know. So I think the standards will vary across the world. Um, but 20 or 30 years is a fairly bland but long-sighted view. Uh, my only other concern is more about technology and cyber security and robustness and, if you like, a standard that we can all buy into. 
And I think probably we're still at a stage where lots of vehicle manufacturers and technical developers are coming up with platforms that aren't as homogenous and standardized as we probably would like. So I, I think the concept is brilliant. The principle of safety is, is great. I'm not yet convinced it's going to be a reality and provide benefit for 20 to 30 years. Okay, Neil. It's a, a much longer term prospect than maybe a lot of people think. And I, I'll use an analogy, having worked uh, in policing and community safety, uh, that when CCTV, public space CCTV was introduced back in sort of the mid 90s, it was seen as a panacea. Crime will disappear from the streets. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and we obviously know that that hasn't happened. So I think this is going to be, This I view this in, in very much the same way in that, you know, people say, well, there's autonomous vehicles, there won't be any crashes. And hopefully they're right, but it, we're not, we're nowhere near ready for that. So we're in that sort of a, uh, a position now where the, the new technology is emerging or it exists to allow a vehicle to drive autonomously without a driver, yet we're nowhere near ready for that to be on the streets. So it's going to be, yeah, as Colin said, 20 or 30 years. And we finish there on a good point of full agreement, I think, and on the time scale before we start seeing a, a full rollout and some impact on the figures. But uh, it looks like there's still a number of questions we're going to need to answer as we sort of go on this journey towards autonomous vehicles becoming a mainstay of our roads. Now, we're a long way from full automation, but it's significant here in Britain. We could be just a few months away from legally allowing drivers to switch off from a part of the driving process. One of the biggest aims of all of this is safety, reducing deaths and serious injuries, but some of the things we've talked about today will need to be settled ahead of the wider rollout, however long it takes. Now, as a vehicle tech fan, I'm still excited about what's coming, but there certainly will be some challenges. Some may say that's an understatement on this journey. Now, many thanks to my guest today, Neil Worth from Gem Motoring Assist and Colin Patterson from Drive Tech. My colleague James Luckhurst will be in the chair for episode four in two weeks' time. If you found this episode of the Project Edward podcast to be of interest, please leave us a review. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comment on what you've heard today, please do join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Project Edward. You can keep up to date with our road safety activity at projectedward.org. The producer was Peter Baker. I'm Neil Barrett. Thanks for listening. <laughs>